So this morning is uh, October 3rd, Sunday morning. Our message has got a funny Hebrew name. If you want to write it down, I'll spell it for you. The message is Tohu Vavohu and Shalom. Tohu Vavohu is Tohu is T-O-H-U Va, B-A, Vohu, V-O-H-U. And then the second Hebrew word is Shalom, S-H-A-L-O-M. Turn with me to Genesis 1. <laughs> Tell me the truth, between Wednesday and Sunday, who suffered from Christian attention deficit disorder? I thought so. Because that was a fine message. And these fine messages are supposed to build on each other. They're supposed to increase our hunger. They're supposed to cause us to want to come to the house of God full of power and bring something to the house of God. Like you're supposed to contribute something to this service. You are supposed to help your brother and sister. And that's what we're, uh, that's what we're aiming at. That's the goal. You in Genesis 1? The first chapter of Genesis has a certain rhythm to it. Kind of like a great poem, if you will. There's a refrain at the close of each stanza in the chapter. It's interesting, in, in English, there's multiple paragraphs in this. I can't remember how many, but a bunch. In Hebrew, there's only six. Six paragraphs, six stanzas, six blocks of text, and each one ends with a refrain. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 13, 19, 23, 31. They all the sa- say the same thing. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and there was morning the third day. And so on and so forth. Like a poem that has a, a rhyming at the end. There's a rhythm to this. And the rhythm is co- intended to convey something in Hebrew. It's intended to convey a passion. It's intended to convey a certain emphasis. And if you could read this in the original language, one of the emphasis that you would see is that verse 1, verse 27, verse 28, and 31 are intentionally emphasized. They stand out. I'm going to get to that emphasis in a moment, but tell me something, or at least sit and think about it as I tell you. When we begin the creation... We have a very orderly account. Are you the kind of people that number things? Any of you go to the store and have a list numbered? I found out early in the marriage that if Jennifer had a list and it said five and then five pounds bags of sugar, she didn't want 25 pounds. She put them in the order that was important for me to get them. This is listed in a way that shows you God has an order to his creation. He is introducing something from the very beginning that you engineers would like to think of as structure. The point is, is that God did not simply randomly do things. He did it in a very orderly fashion. One author said, it describes, speaking of Genesis, an orderly progression of creation according to the will and word of God. And in beautiful language shows how the whole universe finds its explanation in God. It is especially a poem about God and His work. This is how a Jewish author described the first chapter of Genesis. 
when you look at the stanzas, when you look at the structure and you see what's being emphasized, the same way you can in the chorus of a song, the first verse stands out. It is different from the others. It stands out because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This was a monumental statement for its death. It, it let everyone know that the earth did not reside on the back of a tortoise. It didn't hang from something in the sky on a string. It didn't follow any of the ancient myths about the creation. During a time period where Egyptian doctors were still trying to cure infections by spreading bodily waste into open wounds, Moses writes these words. It was not intended to be a scientific account, and yet it is perfectly scientific. This poem was written to show you one powerful thing. Everything that you see, everywhere that you move, everything that you touch has its origin in God. He's the creator. In Him we live and move and have our being. Our New Testament says, but it was quoting a Cretan prophet when he said it. The emphasis in the stanzas falls on the first verse, falls on the 27th verse, the 28th and the 31st. So what is the 27th verse? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The first point that was emphasized was that God created everything. The second point was the created man in his image. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Point one, God created everything. Point two, God created a man in his image. Point three, God blessed what he created. The fourth and climax, the fourth point and climax of the Hebrew poem is the 31st verse. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. If this were a Hebrew song and you were listening to it and you understood it, if you could remember nothing else that was said, if you didn't get the order of creation, if you didn't get all of the details, the part that would be stuck in you if you had to take a test afterwards would be that God created everything. He made only one thing in His image. It was you. And He blessed you. And He looks upon you and His creation and sees it as a good thing. This is what this chapter is intended to convey. They describe or declare the creative power and work of God. Man's likeness to God. His place in the created universe. And the perfection of God's work. At the very beginning of God's narrative to mankind, we have a start, a beginning of the conversation that puts man as God's instrument upon the earth and everything in its right setting. Now let me ask you, when you do something in an order, if we say step one, this, step two, this, step three, this, and so on and so forth, is it important that you follow that order? Right now in my driveway, my wife Suburban is in many pieces. <coughs> Looks like utter chaos. Desolation has struck it. There are parts and pieces and halves of parts everywhere. But there is an order to reassemble. There is an order to make it run and function like it should. Right now, <coughs> without its proper form. Right now, it will not function as it was designed to function. 
because something has crept in and broken the process. God creates in a rhythm, an order, and with a purpose. We call that shalom. He steps in and he sees something and he says, this is how it was intended to run. It was intended to run with me at the top of everything, with one thing made in my image running everything beneath me and him. The order of God, the shalom of God, my peace I give unto you, is recognizing the top of the creation is our Father. And everything that He does, everything that He moves through, everything that He affects, He affects through an order of shalom. He's appointed one man, judge of all things. One man made in His perfect image. That one man is drafting from all of the nations other men who come and be a part of Him. Our God works through shalom. It's an order. It's a flow, a rhythm to the creation. What is maybe most interesting about all of this, though, is that right in the middle of God's poem, right after declaring that He made everything, there's a phrase that only occurs three times in all of the Bible, and this is one of the times. And it is the exact opposite of the rhythm, of the order, of the flow of creation. It's like it was interjected and didn't belong. No different than if while Matthew was playing, a chord got struck that, that didn't flow with the rest of the song. It was an interruption, like interference. And it's the phrase tohu vavohu. You find it right here. Now the earth was formless, tohu, and empty, vavohu. <coughs> The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There was a point at which God created everything that you can see, that can be seen, even the unseen. He created everything. Of that there is no doubt. Genesis 1-2 makes a remarkable statement about it though. It says it was tohu vavohu. And to us that just sounds like a funny Hebrew phrase. I wanted to show you some places it's translated. I wanted to show you the other instances in the Bible. What you will find is that formless and void don't begin to do it justice. What you will find is that just that phrase interjected right there points to an entire other set of questions. Tohu. Turn to Isaiah 24.10. Tell me when you're there. I'm going to show you the words individually, then I'll show them to you as a phrase and see if it all begins to come together. In 24, do you have at the first verse a title above it? The Lord's Devastation on the Earth. So that is the topic of Isaiah 24. Now read the 10th verse. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. The ruined city lies tohu, desolate. One way to translate the word tohu that in Genesis just shows up uh, as formless is desolate. It implies that something was there, but it has been laid waste, ruined. Look at it in uh, Deuteronomy 32. You hang a left in your Bible. In Deuteronomy 32... We're singing a song. It's a song of Moses, and it is a song that occurs 
as a tribute to all that God has done for Jacob. And in 32 verse 9, verse 8, let's say that. Verse 7, how about that? See, if you don't pay attention, I just keep backing up. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided all mankind, He set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted inheritance. In the desert land He found Him. Who is Him? Jacob. In a barren and howling waste, He shielded Him and cared for Him. He guarded Him as the apple of His eye. When did Jacob become a nation? When did Israel become a nation as you know it? When they walked out of Egypt, they became distinct from the world. They were separated in that time period. Israel is now a nation. They have a leader. They have a constitution. They move as a mass. They have an army. They have provision. They have a deity. They are a nation for the very first time recognizable on the entire geopolitical scene as Israel, the moment they walk through that Red Sea, they're born even as you're born again. Well, what's interesting about that is that the tenth verse is in the desert land he found him in a barren and howling waste. Barren and howling waste is tohu. It's the same word that is translated formless in Genesis. Well, what is the barren and howling waste? It's Egypt after ten plagues have fallen upon it. Livestock ruined. Children <coughs> ruined. In its context, the land that he found Israel in is Egypt. He said, no, no, Eric, you got it wrong. It's the desert when they came out of Egypt. Okay, well, what is a desert? Still something that's devoid of the life that should live there. I believe he's talking about Egypt. How about this one? Psalms. Uh, it's 107. Describes, you're not going to turn there. I don't want to turn you to every one of them. Psalm 107 describes a city that is destroyed as trackless waste. That's a way that Tohu is often referred to. Trackless waste. Trackless waste, howling waste, barren, desert, city that is desolate are all Tohu. Isn't that interesting? In the beginning, God created everything, and now let's talk about something that is desolate from destruction. Let's talk about something that is a howling waste. Let's talk about something that is trackless waste where prosperity once reigned and now doesn't. Beginning to get a picture that is maybe different than just uh, some primordial soup. If you're going to define tohu, I would say it means lying in waste or desolation typical of warfare or judgment. And I'm not alone in that assessment. You can find most of the good lexicons will define it that way. Let's look at Bavohu. Turn with me to Jeremiah 4. distinctly different than Tohu. If you get lost in these words, I promise I will help you make this make sense as we go. I want to tell you why it's distinctly different. While Tohu shows up to show desolation, it can even sometimes be used metaphorically as something's in vain, like 
hey, don't do that. It would be no different than just destroying it from the outset. Okay? Vavohu is different. It never appears by itself in the Bible. Never. There's not a single time where this word shows up independent of tohu. In other words, there's a relationship between them. There's a relationship between tohu and vavohu. One causes the other. They're inextricably linked. So every time we see the second word, the first is looming in the distance. Isn't that interesting? There's a cause and effect relationship. Watch this. Jeremiah 4. By the way, what's your title above Jeremiah 4? Look around the fifth verse. Disaster from the north. What is our setting? Judgment, warfare, desolation. Look at the 23rd verse. I looked at the earth and it was tohu vavohu. Here, vavohu is translated empty. I looked at the earth and it was as if, this word formless, tohu, it was as if something had destroyed it. And empty, vavohu, it means the state of something after it's created, but it has not been fashioned or ordered. Kind of like a blob. <laughs> like gelatin if it's not in a mold. Another way to define it is empty, undistinguishable ruin. Tohu speaks of something happening and laying waste everything. Vavohu speaks of its state after that has happened. Jeremiah 4.23 is an example of that. But look at Isaiah 34. Don't get tired of turning. Anybody who wants to be a Bible student needs to get familiar with all of the Bible. 34. <coughs> Isaiah 34, do you have a title above your chapter? 